Thank you, Pastor. Let me join the preacher in welcoming you to the service tonight. If you're glad to be here, give us a good rousing amen. Well, I love those amens. Wonderful. You know, you have a wonderful building here, splendid building. The only thing that can make this building look better is a lot more flesh on those chairs out there. I don't care how homely people look, they look good out there, amen. Appreciate the good selection of hymns tonight. We've already had some theologies I mentioned yesterday. I don't know how true this is, but I read somewhere a while back that in the, in the 2,000 years of the church age, that God's people have put to music and sung over 400,000 hymns. I wouldn't doubt it. I can't prove it, but I wouldn't doubt that a bit. And we have to remember the only people that won't be out of a job in heaven are the singers. Amen. Us preachers will be out of a job in heaven. But the singers, boy, they're going to be busy, aren't they? Anyway, open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 3, chapter 2, matter of fact. Chapter 2, Galatians chapter 2. I preached um, Sunday morning, I preached on the reiteration of the gospel and how that was so thoroughly done in chapter 1. And uh, last night I preached on perverting the gospel and how that was referred to so obviously in chapter 1. And tonight I want to preach from chapter 2, and I don't know whether we're going to call this a lesson, a lecture, or a sermon. Maybe we can name it when it's over. Uh, but I want to get a few things across tonight on the subject of protecting the gospel. And I couldn't find a place in this chapter to start reading and stop reading, so I just decided to read the entire chapter. There are 21 verses of it. It won't hurt us a bit to listen to all of that. I wish you'd follow me as I read that. Beginning in verse 1, it reads like this. Then 14 years after, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. And I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to them that were of reputation, lest by any means they, I should run or had run in vain. But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised, and that because the false brethren unawares brought in, who came in to privately spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you." But, uh, but of those who seem to be somewhat, whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me. God accepteth no man's person. For they who seemed to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me. But contrarywise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter. For he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles." And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship, that we should go unto the heathen, and they unto the circumcision. Only they would that we should remember the poor, the same which I was also forward to do. Also was forward to do. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face, because he was to be blamed, for before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, 
If thou being a Jew livest after the manner of the Gentiles and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I through the law am dead to the law that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I live now in the flesh, uh, which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. With that, let's bow our heads now and pray again. Father in heaven, thank you for the good service already tonight. The splendid fellowship we enjoy with the best people on earth, God's people. And the hymns we've been able to sing together as we've exalted and lifted up our Savior and blended our voices together as we did that. We've been blessed already. The Spirit of God has already touched this service tonight. And we could leave now and say we've been blessed. But I pray that you would help me tonight to enlarge upon the text that I've read and the message that I intend to preach tonight. I pray that you would give me clearness of mind and good continuity in my thoughts and my statements. That my choice of words would be the very best in order to most effectively and intelligently communicate a message to every heart present. And it is my prayer that you would help me to preach tonight in such a manner that even the youngest person here would get something from the sermon tonight. And Lord, I do not know the hearts of these people at all. There could be someone here tonight that isn't saved. Should that be the case, I pray that they would cross that line once again. And that line that takes them out of darkness and death into the light and life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the young lady that got saved yesterday morning. And Lord, there are people listening to this service tonight, perhaps that are unsaved. Help them to realize they can get on their knees in their home wherever they are right now and give their hearts to Christ and be born again. Do something for us that would improve the quality of our Christianity tonight. Give us a greater resolve to live the Christ life than we've ever had before. I pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. But we have an introduction. I want you to notice in chapter 2, Paul is about to launch a mighty defense of the gospel. But before we go into that, I want you to notice in chapter 1, he gives us kind of a short biographical sketch of his life. Uh, you might notice in chapter 1, he mentions persecution, the persecution of believers. Uh, we have to realize that that's what Paul did before he got saved. That was his, that was his occupation, so to speak. And uh, I noticed in his 14 epistles, and I may have missed one somewhere, but noted, no more than five times did Paul refer back to that life he lived before he got saved, that matter of persecution uh, of the Christians. He only referred to that, in my opinion, about five times. And what that tells me is, and by the way, he did it in Galatians 1.13, for you have heard of my conversation, which means my conduct, in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it. Beyond measure, he said. He was a zealous, listen, he was the most zealous Pharisee there was around. 
And, uh, and, he, and he demonstrated that. In Acts 26 and verse 9 and 10, you don't have to turn to this. He said, I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which thing I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. When they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. Uh, what I'm, one thing I'm saying here is that Paul never forgot where God got him, nor did he dwell on it. I will not to ever forget the pit from which we were plucked, nor the rock from which we were hewn, but we ought not to dwell on it. Now I know and you know from time to time some celebrity will make a profession of faith and they've lived an ungodly life, terribly ungodly life and, and they'll get speaking engagements to go around and tell about their testimony and sometimes they'll spend about 40 minutes giving the devil a lot of free publicity and tack a little bit of glory on the endeavor for God. Now I've never been blessed by that. I think we ought to let the devil have about five minutes and give God 40 minutes, amen. Anyway, we, ne we, we, we should never forget where God got us. But notice persecution, having said that, persecution is a reality. Not just lately, but always it has been that way. It was that way in the days of the apostles. Somebody did some research recently, an organization that I have high regard for, and they said 90% of the religious persecution in the world is against Christians. And I believe that, maybe even more than that. But 90% of the, do you realize an organization also said this, and I, I'm quoting what they said because I don't know myself, but they said there have been more martyrs in the last 100-year period than any 100-year period since the days of the apostles. Now, you notice that takes in the dark ages when the Roman church martyred about 50 million of our ancestors. And, uh, and yet they say, uh, more martyrs in the last 100-year period than any 100-year period since the days of the apostles. Now, what that means is there have been a lot of people paid the price in the last 100 years. And they have paid with their lives for being Christians. Now, the Bible said in 1 Peter 4, 12, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. Need I say more? Amen. What about 1 Peter 4, 16? Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. I believe if you, listen, I believe if you could be a Christian without Christ in your life, you'd get by pretty good. But it's Christ that's the problem here. Uh, the devil hates the Christ that lives in your life. And the more obvious he is in your life, the more opposition you're going to incur from the adversary. And listen, you can't change that. You remember what Jesus said in John 15, 19? If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I've chosen out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. You remember what he said to the disciples when he was about to send them out in John chapter 16, beginning in verse 1? These things have I spoken unto you that you should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think they doeth God a service. And these things will they do unto you because they have not known the Father nor me. What I'm saying to put in field of phraseology is this. If you're going to serve God in the next several years in America, you're going to get more hurt than your feelings. And uh, listen, folks, the, the greatest persecution most Baptists have ever had is just getting their feelings hurt. Amen. I'm, I'm talking about up until now, but it's changing. It's changing. I'm going to tell you it's changing mighty fast. But notice he mentions the persecution of the church. That's part of his background. Also, he mentioned his salvation in Christ in verse 15 of chapter 1. When it pleased God, the Bible said, who separated me from my mother's women and called me by his grace. 
I'm going to tell you why you're saved tonight. It's because of the grace of God. Amen. He called me by his grace. Paul, Paul had two calls on his life. He had a call to Christ in Acts chapter 9. You remember that story there? Beginning in verse 5, verse 5, 6, and 7, and so forth. How he's on the road to, listen, he was on the road to demask us. Anybody get that? I like that, don't you? He was heading the right direction, amen. Demask us. I don't know if you know this or not, but some preacher out in California did some research on that, and he told his church. He said that mask is about as effective in keeping COVID out of your body as a chain link fence is keeping mosquitoes out of your yard. And uh, I thought that was a very spiritual statement. But notice he had a call to Christ in chapter 9. Then he had a call to preach in chapter 13. You remember that? We've talked about that already. There are three things that characterize Paul's experience in salvation. Number one, there was genuine expressed remorse for what he had been and what he had done. I don't think he ever got over it. In 1 Timothy 1, 13, he said, Who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor an interest, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and in unbelief. By the way, that's why they do it. I, I quoted those verses from John chapter 16 a few moments ago, the first three verses there. And Jesus said they're going to persecute you because they don't know me or my Father. You know why the Muslims kill Christians? It's because they don't know God. You know why the Roman church murdered Christians in the name of Christ? Because they didn't know Christ. And people are still doing that. You know why they crucified Christ, nailed him to a cross out there? According to what Jesus said, they didn't know what they were doing. They did not know they were nailing their prince of life or their, Jesus Christ to a cross. They, did, they thought he was an imposter. But anyway, there was genuinely expressed remorse then. The Bible said in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, that I am not meet to be called an apostle. And then he said this, Because I persecuted the church of God. Paul, knowing the heart of Paul, reading his epistles, reading his statements and so forth, you have to know that when this man got saved, every day the rest of his life, he reminded himself of what he had done to those disciples. He never got over it. I believe. Now, I knew he was forgiven. He knew that. But he never got over what he had done to those disciples, how he had persecuted and prosecuted them. But notice there was not only, uh, there was also genuine repentance, not only genuine remorse here. There was repentance. Say, so, preacher, would you please tell me what repentance is? I give you the best uh, definition I can. One, listen, I came up with this for myself. And uh, if you don't agree with that's all right, but it's the best I've come up with. Repentance is not an action, it's an attitude of heart. If somebody told you to get down there and repent, those are not good instructions. Repentance is an attitude of heart, and what it means is seeing yourself like God sees you, a hell-bound, helpless sinner, and seeing sin as the biggest problem in your life, and seeing the Savior as the only solution to it. When you've come that far, you're in a good position to put faith in, saving faith in Jesus Christ. <laughs> Amen. And the reason I emphasize that, one reason is because in our world today, some preachers of stature in America have already said that repentance is not a New Testament doctrine, has nothing to do with salvation. Now, I don't know where they come up with that. In my, in my Bible, it's still in there. I was on a plane coming from out west, and I don't know where I was going, but I just had a few hours on a plane. And, and I was reading a publication by one of the, uh, one of the preachers who had a lot of stature in America. And I'm not talking about Jack Hiles. I'm talking about somebody else. 
And, uh, and, and he said in that publication, repentance is not a New Testament doctrine, has nothing to do with salvation. And I thought, he couldn't mean that. And I read the whole article, and that's what he had said, and I thought, he could not mean that. I read the next article where he defended in that one what he had said in this one, which means he really believed that. Listen, it's in the Bible, folks. <laughs> it's still there. How about Luke 13, 3, I tell you, nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. God thought so much of that statement, he said it twice. He said it again in verse 5, identically. Then we have verses like Luke 24, 47, and the repentance or remission of sin shall be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. In Acts 17, 30, the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Uh, folks, we need, preachers, we need to lock our arms together and march across America and cry out for America to repent. Amen. Something's going to save us if, thing, if anything does. Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.15, this is the faithful saying, where the whole acceptation the Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Expressing what, and, and more or less expressing how he felt about himself. By the way, I came up with my definition of repentance from God. Uh, here's what I mean by that. In the Old Testament, you'll, several times, you'll see the, the statement, and God repented. And the Lord repented. And every time you see that, he changed courses and went a different direction. Now, repentance is not a change, but it precipitates one. When a person repents, they really repent, they're not going to keep going the same direction they were going. A change takes place following that. So well, that's kind of old-fashioned. That's exactly what I am, amen. And I have no intention of changing. <laughs> There was genuine remorse. There was genuine repentance. There was genuine regeneration. I want to tell you when Paul got, listen, listen, listen. Paul got saved, 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 saved. I mean, he didn't just say plain saved, amen. He got saved, saved, amen. You know what I'm saying? He never had to be restored. They never had to have a delegation go out and find him and what's, what's wrong, why are you not doing the work of God? Nobody had to go look for him. Listen, he got, when he got saved, he locked on like a bulldog and he never missed a step the rest of the way. <laughs> oh my, that verse is still in the Bible, folks. 2 Chronicles 5, 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, behold, all things have become new. Paul never had to be restored. By the way, he was a highly educated individual. We know that, don't we? He had a BA and a DD. Born again, devil disturber. Amen. Boy, he was that. But he mentions his persecution of the church, his salvation experience. He also mentioned his induction into the ministry. In chapter 1, verse 15, he said, When it pleased God, who called me from separated my mother's women, called me by his grace to reveal his son to me, that I might preach him among the heathen. God called him to preach. Uh, listen, when I was 15 years old, I got saved. But I, and I can't explain this, folks, but I really believe I knew before I got saved, God wanted me to be a preacher. I can't explain it. Don't ask me to explain that. I can't explain it. And it could have been so with this character here. Amen. When I pastored for 19 years, I had several young men to acknowledge a call to preach. But look at me. I never called a one. That's not our call. Amen. 
I'd have a young man come in my study and, and he comes in, he says, uh, Pastor, uh, Brother Fielder, Dr. Fielder, uh, I believe God wants me to be a preacher. And they thought I would jump up, boy, and hop around the room and shout, rejoice. I just looked at them. But later they would say, I didn't know how to take you. I thought you'd be shouting for me to tell you that I, God called me to preach. You know why I didn't? I'm not encouraging him at all. You know why the worst place a young man can be is in the ministry if God hadn't put him there. I've never called a one, brother, and I don't intend to. My son, we were out soul winning one night, headed back to the house, and he was 16 years old. That's, that's the age when I acknowledged to call a priest too. He said, Dad, I believe God wants me to be a preacher. And I said, son, there's one thing you can remember. He said, what's that, Dad? I said, you have to remember that I never called you. I'm glad you're going to be a preacher, but I want you to know you don't have to be a preacher to please your dad. Because a lot of young men have done that. A lot of young men have been called by their pastors, their grandparents, maybe even their parents. And, it's, and listen, it's, uh, it's going to get rough. It's rough enough when God's in it. Could we have some amens out of these pastors here? So you don't know what it's like to put up with a crowd like you. <laughs> Strike that last statement, please. Anyway, God's still calling young men to the ministry, and thank God he is. And uh, so, but notice something. Notice also two things here, and yet I'm, I'm almost down to my sermon already. Uh, two things in this context. Paul is in the process of defending the gospel in Galatians chapter 2. And you know what he said in Philippians 1.17? I am set for the defense of the gospel, implying that the gospel does need some defense, especially in our world, folks. There's a war against the gospel. But notice in the process of doing this, he refers to three things. Uh, three things that he did at the meeting in Jerusalem in Acts 15. And that's what chapter 2 is about. He's telling the Galatians what happened in that meeting up there in, in Jerusalem when he met those other apostles up there. And, uh, and, and, and there are three things there that he did. And I'm going to send my thoughts around those three things. Number one, he clarifies the gospel. Paul told the Galatians what happened up there. Here's what he said in verse 2. And I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. There are three things that characterize that gospel. It is a gospel of divine revelation. He didn't come up with this on his own. He didn't learn about it in seminary or the cemetery or whatever. Go back to Galatians 1.11. I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached to me is not after man, neither was, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. He said, God gave this to me. It was not after man. Uh, you know, there are a lot of people who have some ideas about salvation and the gospel. The Campbellites have one. Uh, you remember in Acts chapter 2 and verse 36, as the Bible said, um, Acts 2, 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know surely that God hath made that same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When they heard these things, they were pricked in their hearts and said unto Peter, the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Verse 38, And Peter, Peter answered and said, uh, Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall be filled with the Holy Ghost. You shall receive the Holy Ghost, filled with the Holy Ghost. And uh, by the way, the Church of Christ, the Campbellites have gotten hold of it. That is the cornerstone of their doctrine. If they didn't have Acts 2.38, they'd have to start now, tonight, coming up with something. Amen. Uh, they the Acts 2.38 thing, they talk about it all the time. I heard about this, uh, this dear lady who was a Campbellite, lived alone, and she discovered one night that somebody had broken into her house. 
She, two men had broken into her house. She was defenseless. She didn't know what to do. She just started screaming, Acts 2.38, Acts 2.38, Acts 2.38, Acts 2.38. And the guys fled. She called the police. They caught up with them down the road, brought them back. Policeman said, fellas, we don't understand. This lady's defenseless. She's helpless. And you're, you're fleeing like you're running for your life. Could I ask you why? One of them said, well, if somebody had an ax in 238s after you, wouldn't you run? <laughs> uh, by the way, when you build a doctrine on a private uh, a passage of Scripture, you're going to run into trouble when you run into other verses that deal with that subject. Acts 2.38, repent, be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Uh, that's the order exactly that they say. I've had them tell me, if you make a profession of faith in a Sunday morning service and you die on the way to the baptistry, you go to hell. That's what they've said. That's what they believe. But you know what the problem is? In Acts chapter 10, verse 47, Peter said, Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? So what you have there, in, in Acts chapter 10, you have some people that have been saved. They've received the Holy Ghost, but they hadn't been baptized yet. But yet in Acts 2.38, they say, You have to be baptized first. See, when you, make a, when you build a, a doctrine on a private verse, you're going to run into trouble. And by the way, in Acts 2.38, since you brought this up, that little word for comes from the Greek word E-I-S, which means because of, not in order to, and for is not incorrect. Let me tell you why. Uh, here's an illustration. If a man faces a judge and the guy has committed murder and he is sentenced for his crime, that does not make him a criminal. He was a criminal before he got there. There's, he's sentenced because of his crime. For means because of. But people don't normally read it that way in Acts 2.38. Next time you run into a candlelight, you point that out to them, amen. And also point out chapter 10, verse 47. And they don't want you to point that out, but point it out to them anyway. The Catholic, listen, the candlelights have their idea of the gospel. The Catholics have their idea of how to be saved. Eat those little God cookies and be faithful to your confession, amen. <laughs> and you're going to go to heaven. The cultists have their idea. The Calvinists have their idea. By the way, the Muslims have their idea. Let me tell you something that um, I didn't know for years. The Muslims, they're, in their book, uh, the Koran, Allah will send to heaven whom he chooses. Allah will send to hell whom he chooses. I wonder if they got that from John Calvin or he, or he got it from them. That sounds awfully Calvinistic, doesn't it? I got that out of one of their books. Uh, this fellow and his brother got saved out of the Muslim religion, and they're writing this book, and I've been reading that book. <laughs> The man's ideas on salvation will get you into hell. Uh, can anyone tell me what you must do to go to hell? By the way, uh, I was reading about this Sunday school teacher that asked her class, said, uh, boys and girls, can anybody tell me what you've got to do to go to heaven? She said it about like that. One of them said, you have to believe in God. Another one said, you have to be good. And they gave several answers and Finally, one old boy raised his hand. Boy, he knows the answer. She called on him. Billy, you got to be dead. <laughs> oh, my. By the way, this was a revelation from God, according to Ephesians 3, 3. How the, by revelation he made known unto me the mysteries I wrote afore in a few words, Paul said. 
This, this is a, a gospel of divine revelation. It's also a gospel of divine truth. Listen, this is not something we came up with. I'm going to tell you something, folks. We Baptists are right. We are right. And we don't always do right the right way, but we are right. Our doctrines are right. Don't ever waste your time trying to change me, brother. Because we are already right. We're already there. You know why? Everything we believe is right there in the scripture. It's the gospel of divine truth. Paul was convinced of the truth. In relation to that. By the way, the word truth is found 51 times in his 14 epistles. He made a lot of it. In verse 5, to whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel, he said, might continue with you. When you preach the gospel, you're preaching the truth. Truth's a powerful thing, by the way, and it's hated by the world. You know what Job said in Job 6.25? How forceful are right words. Folks, truth has a lot of power. And it'll get you in trouble with a lot of people because they don't want to know the truth. You remember what the Bible said in Romans 1.28, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. I've asked a few people what, they, what their take is on reprobate. The best thing I've come up with is abandon. When God abandons a man to his corrupt human nature, that man is in trouble. God gave them up and God gave them over, according to Romans chapter 1. To a reprobate mind. Listen, I believe our society is full of reprobates, folks. And I believe a lot of them are on Capitol Hill. Amen. Anyway, atheists, you know, they don't want any truth. They don't want God. They don't want anything about God. You know, we have atheists today that claim to be atheists. There's no such thing as an atheist. Romans 1, 19 and 20, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the, from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Now, the reason I say there's no such thing as an atheist is because God says there's no such thing as an atheist. And I told you yesterday, he's been right every time so far. I'm going to stick with him, aren't you? I understand you may have read this somewhere along. This atheist was up before a judge complaining because the atheist did not have a holiday. The judge said, I beg your pardon, sir. You do have a holiday. He said, well, what is it? He said, it's April 1st. <laughs> oh, my. Have you ever noticed that atheists spend millions of dollars every year fighting a God they claim does not exist? Now, don't tell my wife I said this, but that's dumb. Amen. Can you imagine that? By the way, I noticed they never fight Allah. There's not a peep out of them. You know why? They know Allah's a fraud. And also down in their hearts, they know God isn't. <laughs> oh, my. They can't handle You know why they turn red in the face when you quote scripture to them? They can't handle it. They can't handle it. I, uh, I may have told you about this. There's a trucking company in Atlanta, Georgia, that when they hire drivers or prospective drivers, they have them take a polygraph test. And that's a lie detector, if you don't know. 
And uh, one of the questions on that polygraph is, do you believe in God? And here's what they said. Every time someone says no, the polygraph says they lied. That's in keeping with what the Bible says. There's no such thing as an atheist. They're a bunch of liars. They ought to say I'm a rebel. I refuse to believe what I know in my heart is true. Let's talk about truth for a few moments. Truth is very important to God. I'm going to give you some scripture. In John 1, 14, the Bible said the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This is he of whom I speak. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness of all we received in grace for grace, for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. You can take what Jesus says, folks. Matter of fact, John 16, 7 Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, Jesus said. I want to tell you, when you find what Jesus said about anything, you don't need a second opinion. He tells the truth about heaven, truth about hell, truth about sin, truth about Satan. He tells the truth about everything. Brother, you can build a sermon on whatever he says. You don't need a second opinion. John 8, 32, ye shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. John 14, 6, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In John 17, 17, in that great priestly prayer, Jesus prayed to the Father. He said, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. If it, listen, if the Bible only said that one time and that was it, that's all God would have had to say. <laughs> I like Ephesians 1, 13, in whom you also trusted after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after you believed you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of his glory. And the Bible said in 1 Timothy 2, 4, who will have all men to come to the truth. Come to the, be saved, come to the truth. Who will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. It's a gospel of divine revelation. It's a gospel of divine truth. It's a gospel of divine power. Uh, you know what? The gospel, need, it just needs some more people preaching it. We don't need another message, folks. A lot of churches have evolved. They've gotten away from the true message. And they're pulling a big crowd in. But guess, you, you just have to guess how many of those people are not regenerated. In these generic churches where they stand for nothing and fall for everything. Uh, by the way, they're not winning souls. Since you brought it up, I'll tell you that. They're not winning souls. You know what they're doing? They're getting people out of churches like this one that are looking for a comfort zone to serve God in. If they can go there for a few minutes on Sunday and get entertained and get a little sermonette and go home and their conscience is soothed for the rest of the week. So, well, we don't have to come. The Bible doesn't say to come to church on Sunday night. I'll tell you what it does say. Hebrews 10, 20, have not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the man of some is, but exhorting one another. And so much the more, so much the more, so much the more as you see the day approaching. You know what God said? We need more of this, not less of it. It's the gospel of divine power. That's what Paul said in Romans 1, 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. You know, Jesus died not so that everybody would be saved. He died so that everybody could get saved. And anybody that wants to be saved can be saved. I don't care who they are. Anyway, um, you, you, you can relate to this. I thought about that crowd at Corinth. 
Uh, you know, they are carnal. They were known as the Did you know that Paul wrote 100 chapters in the New Testament and 29 of them were directed to one church, the Corinthian church. They had more problems than Carter had liver pills. They were a carnal lot. But you know what, Paul, and Paul was, you ever notice when he starts his epistles, he somehow or other found to commend these people he's writing to. He did that to the church of Corinth in chapter 1. He commended those people, commended and commended, commended them, you know. I mean, you'd think they were great. <laughs> but you know what it said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in verses 9 and 10, he mentioned 11 things that characterized the typical worldling. And then in verse 11, he said this, And such were some of you, but now you're washed, now you're sanctified, now you're justified. You know what he's saying in field of phraseology? That's the way it was, but that's not the way it is. The gospel changed that. Amen. The gospel's the power of God into salvation. You know, once you get saved, you can never be who you were and things be as they were again. It's impossible. You, you get the almighty God of Isaiah 9, 6 in you and the mighty God of Genesis 17, 1 in you and you're not going to be the same as you were. It's going to make a difference in your life. You can't explain the you can't explain men like Sam Jones apart from the power of the gospel. Old Sam Jones was an accomplished lawyer at a young age, a brilliant lawyer, but liquor got him. And, uh, and his testimony was he was in a bar and he was about to take another drink and he saw himself in the mirror. Now, if I was running a bar, there'd be no mirror back there. These guys don't need to see what, what they look like, amen. But he saw himself and he looked at himself and he said, uh, is this what has happened to the once great lawyer, Sam Jones? And he threw that little, little glass to the floor, burst it into a thousand pieces. And he went out and he gave his heart to God. And he went to the barber shop and got a shave and a shower. Went to the closure, got a, got a new suit of clothes. Went home, knocked on the door. His wife came to the door. He said, honey, you have a new husband. And she thought he was drunk again. <laughs> but he became a firebrand for God. You know why? Because of the power of the gospel. You've never met anybody. The power of the gospel can't change if they'll let God work. <laughs> you can explain C.I. Schofield, the guy who edited the Schofield Bible. I understand he had a friend. It was kind of timid, I guess, like a lot of us are. And, uh, but he went to his office one day and he said, Schofield, why aren't you saved? Mr. Schofield said, well, doesn't the Bible say somewhere that no drunkard shall enter into the kingdom of God? He said, I didn't ask you that. I asked you why you're not saved. He gave another reason. I finally ran out of excuses. And he got on his knees and gave his heart to God. See how Schofield said, I felt the chains of sin fall off while I was on my knees that day. You know why? The power of the gospel, amen. <laughs> my goodness. That's like a... Not to make a Presbyterian shout. I was as bad as a little bit. Notice he clarifies the gospel and notice he contends for the gospel in verse 4 and 5. And that because of false brethren unawares brought in who came in private to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus to whom we gave place by subjection no not for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. I told you what he said in Philippians 1.17, I am set for the defense of the gospel. And Paul said in Philippians 1.27, only let your conversation be as it become of the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the truth of the gospel. 
you know, there's an implication there. It's this, you're going to have to strive for the truth. There's a war against the truth. The devil fights it every single day. And a lot of churches have not survived it. They've compromised it. And what did Jude say about it in verse 3? Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write on you of this common salvation, it was needful for me to write on you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares, who before of old ordained to this condemnation ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul is contending for the gospel. There are two things involved in defending the gospel. Number one, it involves real conviction. See, the dictionary defines conviction like this, the act of being convinced. If you're really convinced about something, you won't be mealy-mouthed with it. If you're really convinced of it, you'll be outspoken with it. If you're really convinced. And the, le and the, the, the legal courtroom definitions go something like this. Are you ready for this? Something you will die for. A judge told some Christians in a courtroom several years ago, uh, if you're not willing to die for it, it's not a conviction, it's a preference. And I fear that a lot of our convictions really are preferences and would be given up under some circumstances, but we need some convictions, amen. Boy, Paul had some convictions. He was not about to give up, uh, give up on this. He was a man of strong conviction. He feared no one. As a matter of fact, a good illustration that be in Acts 21, verse 13. They warned him not to go to Jerusalem. They're going to bind you up there. Don't go up there. You know what he said in that verse? What meaning for the weep and to break my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound in Jerusalem, but I'm willing to die for there for Jesus. He didn't, he was not afraid. You know, you know what he said in 2 Timothy 4, 6. For I am now ready to be offered. The time of my departure is at hand. I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, not to me only, but to all them that love is appearing. It involves conviction. It also involves confrontation. You're going to have that. Paul was a confrontational preacher. He confronted whoever needed to be confronted. He confronted the false brethren, according to verses 4 and 5 that I read to you there in Jerusalem. He confronted, confronted Peter at Antioch. And, and uh, at, in verse 11, when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. Uh, listen, he confronted false teachers. He confronted compromisers. There was no compromise when it came to the gospel as far as Paul was concerned. Now, I'll have to tell you this, and you don't have to agree with this, but you do have to realize that I'm usually right. <laughs> um, God tolerated some things he didn't approve of. I don't think it was ever God's will for David to have more than one wife. Or Abraham or Isaac or anybody back there. God still tolerates some things that he doesn't really approve of. And we have to do that. Pastors have to do that. I mean, you pastor in church, you have people at all different levels of spiritual growth. Maturity or immaturity or whatever. And, uh, and he has to minister to all of them. So he's going to tolerate some things that he can't really change, that he doesn't approve of. But when it comes to the gospel, there is no compromise. There is no compromise when it comes to the gospel. Um, Paul was not going to have the modernist or the priest or the rabbi sitting on the platform when he was preaching. Can you relate to that? One evangelist that was America's evangelist. Billy Graham. 
when he first started out, he was as sound as he could be doctrinally. He had good meetings and so forth. But as he grew in popularity, a lot of that stuff fell off to the point that he'd have Roman Catholics sitting on the platform, the priests sitting on the platform. And, he had, and, and the workers were instructed that if a Roman Catholic comes to the altar to be saved, you lead them to Christ, but you send them back to their church. That's right out of the, listen, that's the devil, folks. And he'd have those people sitting on the platform with him. What well, wouldn't happen with Apostle Paul? Amen. Well, I was so adamant about the gospel. He knew that you have to be right. Here's why. Here's why Paul was so adamant about this. He knew if you're wrong about the gospel, you can be right about everything else and you're going to miss heaven a million miles. He also knew if you're right about the gospel, you can be wrong about a lot of things and you're still going to heaven. Amen. Vance Havner said these, even the charismatics, there's going to be some charismatics in heaven if they don't run past it. <laughs> you know why I'm so adamant what I'm saying? Acts 4.12, neither is there salvation in any other, for there's none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. There is none other name, folks. There is no other way. Well, doesn't that make you Baptist preachers kind of narrow? Yes, it does, and we plan to get worse. <laughs> when it comes to things of, of eternal significance, my philosophy is you ought to be so narrow-minded you could look through a keyhole with both eyes at the same time. <laughs> anyway, Paul clarifies the gospel. He contends for the gospel. And then he contrasts the gospel and the law. Two things Paul does. Notice he declares the relevance of the law. By the way, mentioned 32 times in Galatians. Law, more than, more than grace. Matter of fact, in his 14 epistles, law is mentioned 148 times and grace is mentioned 99 times. That, that says something to me. It might not say a lot to you, but it does to me. There are two things we need to know about the law. We need to know about the powerless nature of it. Uh, verse 16 said, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. Now you and I that are born again, him if you're saved, say amen. amen. You have been made just in the sight of a holy God that cannot look on sin. But the law, it's not because of the law. Uh, verse 21 said, I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Tell the Seventh-day Adventists to put that in their pipe and smoke it. Amen. They pretty much believe that if, if you don't observe the law, you're not going to... You know what? They believe you observe the law of the Sabbath. Well, at least they say they do. They don't really believe that because if they did, they'd stone the people that violated it. Because the same scripture that gives that, that, that Old Testament scripture that tells them to keep the Sabbath and make it holy, keep the Sabbath, also says they're to stone the ones that... They violate that. They don't do that. I'm kind of glad they don't, but uh, they don't do that, do they? Romans 8, 3, listen to this. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. Galatians 3, 11, that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident. How about Hebrews 10, 4? For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. That means all those sacrifices in the Old Testament, folks, were figures. 
They were not actually taking sin away. They were, they were symbolizing a sacrifice that was going to come one day when the one sacrifice was made permanently. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, But this man after he'd offered one sacrifice for sins forever sat down on the right hand of God. Thank God for that. But what does it mean? What does it mean to the unsaved? It means no man, no man of works can save you. No religion can save you. Let me give you an illustration. And I'm hurrying to close. I should be closed here in a few minutes. You take Nicodemus. Nicodemus, John chapter 3, verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night, saith unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou dost except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I said unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 4, Nicodemus said, How can, answer it, How can a man be born again? Can he enter the second time to his mother's womb be born? And Jesus went on with the discussion about born, being born again, born again, and so forth. But here's, here's what I want to point out about that. Jesus chose, probably deliberately, the most religious man, the most highly learned Pharisee uh, of, of all the Pharisees to tell this to. Now, he did not tell it to the woman taken in the act of adultery in John chapter 8, although it applied to her. Because if he had, you're telling somebody about that chapter 8 story there and uh, how Jesus uh, told that woman she had to be born again. And some skeptic would say, well, I'm not, a, I'm not an adulteress, so that doesn't apply to me. Jesus told it to the most religious man in the Gospels. And by the way, the Pharisees had the best religion in the world as far as religion goes. They believed in the God of heaven. They believed the prophets. They believed the Messiah was coming. They hadn't recognized him, but they believed he was coming. They're still believing that. Amen. Uh, they went to church every Sabbath day. They gave a tenth of their income, more than a lot of Baptists do. Somebody say amen. They read their Bibles religiously. They prayed privately and publicly. They lived exemplary lives. They had the best religion in the world. Yet Jesus said to that man, Sir, if you're going to heaven, you have to be born again. Doesn't that answer that question? I mean, isn't it clear to see that Jesus was saying it doesn't matter what kind of religion you have. You can have the best religion on planet earth and you're going to miss heaven a million miles unless you're born again. You know, every unsaved person needs to find out what born again means and ascertain, have I been born again? Every person owes it to themselves to know that. The Bible said in 1 John 5, 11, this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Verse 11 tells us what it is and where it is. It's a gift. It's in Christ. Verse 12 tells us who has it. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. You know what that means? That means everybody on planet earth is in one of those categories or the other. Everybody. I don't care who they are or where they are. Anyway, uh, just to summarize a little bit here. See, the law could not justify us. Let me, let me tell you some things about the law. This is just practical statements. Uh, the law was not given to save sinners, but to prove that sinners could not save themselves. The law could condemn sinners, but couldn't save sinners. The law could command obedience, but couldn't produce obedience. The law could tell men how to live, but could not empower him to live. The law could threaten with death, but could not deliver from death. Thank God we found the... We found a solution to it, amen. Job 9, 2, the Bible said, Job 9, 2, I know it is over truth, but how shall a man be just with God? 
That wasn't answered back there. The question was raised, but it wasn't answered. Thank God it's answered in the New Testament. Romans 5, 1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you've been born again, the war is over between you and God. You have peace with God. Romans 4, 5, but him that believeth not, but, uh, but, uh, see, but him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. You know how Abraham was justified before God, his faith. Was, you know what the Bible said in Galatians 3, 8? The gospel was preached to Abraham. Huh. Anyway, uh, there was the powerless nature of the law. There's the purpose of the law. It was to get sinners lost. Galatians 3.24 says it like this. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. Romans 7.7. 7. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law. For I had not known lust except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. By the way, we need to use the law in our soul winning. It gets people lost. It brings them to the threshold of eternal life, but it doesn't. It can't get them across it. The Bible says it's our schoolmaster. It's like looking in the mirror and it shows you exactly what you are. He declares the power of faith in Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live with the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Boy, that is a mouthful. Faith justifies us before God. Verse 16 said, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. I could go on and on with these. I don't need to do that. Faith gives us access to the grace of God. Isn't that what the Bible said? Romans 5, 2, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace. If you want to experience the grace of God, just putting your faith in Jesus Christ. That gives you access to this grace. If you've never done that, you ought to do that tonight. Uh, let me ask you to do this. Ask yourself, can I go back to a place in my life where I trusted Christ as my Savior? Can I do that? Can I go back to a place in my life where I trusted Christ as my Savior? It can't be like one fellow said, well, my mother told me that I prayed the sinner's prayer when I was a little bitty boy. You can't do that. That's not going to work. You have to know that you intelligently, deliberately, and sincerely said yes to Jesus somewhere back there. And that's when you became born again. You've listened well. I appreciate it. I want you to stand. I want our musicians to come. I could go on with this a little while longer. I don't think it's necessary. I kind of feel like I'm preaching to the choir tonight. <laughs> I know I'm not preaching something you don't know about. Anyway, while we're standing with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father in heaven, thank you for the word of God that we've been able to elaborate on tonight and consider. And I trust the Holy Spirit has used it to encourage every believer in the building and perhaps challenge someone who isn't a believer to become a believer. I pray for every decision that should be made tonight that it will be made and Jesus will be glorified by it. We'll all be edified by it and I pray in Jesus' name. While our heads remain bowed and our musicians are playing for us,